The nation's two biggest railroad unions reject a contract deal negotiated by the Biden administration, increasing the chances of a nationwide strike. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, people in Colorado Springs hold a vigil to honor the five people killed in a shooting at a queer nightclub. Some LGBTQ people there are not surprised to be the target of violence. Though we're reeling that it happened uh, here in our community, I think we've all been so afraid for such a long time. And this is just a confirmation of worst fears. Also this hour, families seeking shelter in Massachusetts have a hotline to call, but hold times can last up to three hours. Someone finally picked up and I just heard background noises for about 10 minutes and I kept saying hello, hello. And the call for doctors to openly defy abortion bans. Bruins win, Celtics lose, sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The man suspected of killing five people at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs is expected to face numerous charges. District Attorney Michael Allen says the case is being investigated as murder and potential for bias-motivated crimes. But it is important to let the community know that we do not tolerate bias-motivated crimes in this community that we support communities that have been maligned, harassed, and intimidated and abused. And that's one way that we can do that, showing that we will uh, put the money uh, where our mouth is, essentially. The suspect could be charged with hate crimes in the attack. Officials say the alleged gunman, who was subdued by club patrons, remains hospitalized. He could make his first court appearance later this week. U.N. inspectors say there's no immediate nuclear threat after intense shelling over the weekend at a Russian-occupied nuclear power station in Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kikisis reports Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other for the shelling. A team of inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency examined the Zaporizhia nuclear power station in southeastern Ukraine to check for damage. In a statement, they say key equipment, including reactor units and storage facilities, remains intact after the plant was shelled at least a dozen times over the weekend. But the inspectors say they saw widespread damage to other areas of the plant, a development that agency director Rafael Grossi called, quote, a cause for concern at one of the world's largest nuclear power plants. Grossi is urging Ukraine and Russia to create a demilitarized protection zone around the plant. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Highways, airports, train and bus stations are expected to be crowded as millions of people begin traveling to their Thanksgiving destinations. NPR's David Shaper reports the number of people traveling for the holiday this week is expected to be near pre-pandemic levels. Airports are bracing for Thanksgiving crowds not seen since 2019 as airlines expect to fly more than 2 million passengers a day. This summer's surge in air travel demand led to widespread flight delays and cancellations. But Mike Arnott of Sirium, which collects and analyzes airline data, says the airlines are better prepared now. They are offering fewer flights compared to last year. And that really just takes the pot off the boil, as it were. And so I think they're going to have a focus on much smoother operations. And AAA predicts nearly 50 million Americans will be driving for Thanksgiving with the heaviest traffic expected Wednesday afternoon. David Shaper, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Police in Hingham say they are talking with the driver of a car that went through the front window of an Apple store. One person died in the crash yesterday morning. Police identified that person as 65-year-old Kevin Bradley of New Jersey. Dr. William Tolifson of South Shore Health says at least 16 others were hurt. The injuries were somewhat diverse, um, ranging from uh, some pretty serious head trauma uh, to some uh, pretty decent lower extremity trauma, mangled limbs. Police have not charged the driver in the crash, and they are not releasing that person's name. A Reading police officer can return to his job after a jury acquitted him of charges in the fatal shooting of a man in 2018. Officer Eric Drowski has been on unpaid leave since he was indicted two years ago for the shooting of 43-year-old Alan Greeno. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Prosecutors argued that Greeno was unarmed and did not pose a threat when police went to his apartment to investigate an alleged domestic assault. But Drowski's attorney, Ken Anderson, says his client responded appropriately because Greeno was aggressive and fled to a nearby junkyard. Clearly, he was somebody who did not want to be caught, who was not in his right mind and was trying to provoke a confrontation. And then at a distance of less than, you know, five and a half feet, was charging towards Officer Drowski and refusing to show his hands. Anderson says Drowski's grateful for the verdict. Reading police say they've begun the process to reinstate Drowski to the department. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Baker is asking state legislators to quickly approve more money for emergency shelters. He says an increase in migrants and the lack of affordable housing is putting shelters at capacity. The $130 million requested by Baker would also send money to schools for educating migrants. It's unclear if any moves will be made on the bill before Baker leaves office in January. President Biden and the First Lady are coming to Massachusetts today for the Thanksgiving holiday. The White House says the two will arrive on Nantucket today. That's where the Biden family traditionally celebrates Thanksgiving. The president will return to Washington on Sunday. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting since 1938. With thousands of new and antique rugs, Boston, Salem, Framingham, and online at LandryandArkari.com. The Bruins won their seventh in a row last night. They beat the Lightning 5-3 in Tampa. The Bees will visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow. And the Celtics lost to the Bulls 121-107 in Chicago last night. That ended the Celts' nine-game winning streak. They'll host the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow. Fenway Park will host high school football today. This afternoon, it's Boston Latin Academy against O'Brien. Then tonight, it's Medford against Malden. Medford Athletic Director Bobby Maloney says the games are meaningful to the players, especially the seniors. 90% of the kids won't go on and play anymore after high school. So, you know, they've got some great friends. They've uh, built some great uh, traditions and they'll remember uh, their last game for the rest of their life. Fenway will host three more games tomorrow. Sunny today and a bit breezy. The high will be in the mid-40s. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 30s. Sunny tomorrow and near 50. Sunny for Thanksgiving Day and in the mid-40s. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. 
More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. We are learning more about the shooting over the weekend that killed five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. We're also learning more about the man who tackled the gunman and stopped the violence. KUNC's Lucas Brady-Woods has been covering all this, and he joins us now from Colorado. Thanks for being here, Lucas. Thanks for having me. What more can you tell us about the investigation at this point? Well, law enforcement held a press conference yesterday afternoon, and they hadn't actually confirmed the charges then, and they didn't elaborate on them. But officials stressed that the investigation is ongoing, including into the shooter's motivation. At that point, they had not quite called this a hate crime. They hadn't officially gone that far yet, although Colorado Springs Police Chief did say it it felt like one. District Attorney Michael Allen said his office is going to be very careful about what information it releases. We have an interest in making sure that any conviction we achieve in a case like this can withstand the appeal process. So we'll be very careful about the information that we share, at least as it relates to the DA's office. The alleged shooter, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, was still in the hospital as of last night, but will appear in court by video as soon as he's released. And we're learning more about the victims, right? Yeah, two of the victims, Daniel Aston and Derek Rump, were well-known bartenders at Club Q. The others were patrons of the nightclub, Kelly Loving, Raymond Green Vance, and Ashley Green Paw. Uh, also, two club patrons were the ones who actually stopped the gunman. Mm-hmm. One of them is an Army veteran named Richard Fierro, who was at the club with his family. He says he was able to pull the gunman to the ground, which made him drop the rifle. Then Fierro and another bystander, Thomas James, were able to subdue him. I was proud to be a soldier. I'm not a G.I. Joe. I'm just a normal guy, man. I, I, I'm protecting my family. And I reached up and I, and, I, and I did what I had to do. That was a clip from Fierro there speaking on CNN yesterday. Yeah, law enforcement said the shooter would definitely have inflicted more harm if they didn't intervene. I should note that Vance, one of those killed, was the boyfriend of Fierro's daughter. Hmm. You're having conversations with people in Colorado Springs. What are they telling you as they work through what's happened there? Well, Colorado Springs is a particularly conservative city, and Club Q is one of just a few LGBTQ-friendly venues there. It's been a place where that community could come together and have fun while, most importantly, feeling safe. But I want to touch on the timing of the shooting. The midterm elections just ended, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people are pointing to the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric voiced by many of the candidates here in Colorado and across the country. In Colorado, though, for example, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who just won re-election in a surprisingly close race, has repeatedly said that the LGBTQ community is, quote, grooming children. And Republican Heidi Ganahl made anti-transgender misinformation a centerpiece in her failed bid for governor against incumbent Jared Polis, who is openly gay. Yesterday, I talked to Brianna Titone, who's Colorado's first openly transgender lawmaker, and she said this kind of rhetoric has consequences. They're just fueling the fire uh, on these issues, which makes somebody with a gun want to do something. And that's that's a dangerous combination. Just this year, hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in legislatures across the country, and data show hate crimes targeting LGBTQ people are on the rise. KUNC's Lucas Brady-Woods for us in Colorado. Thanks for your reporting, Lucas. We appreciate it. 
Thank you. Let's bring in Alana Redfield. She's the federal policy director at UCLA's Williams Institute, where she studies the effect of policies like the ones we just heard about on the LGBTQI community. Alana, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you. Can you give us an understanding of the scale of violence that the LGBTQ community faces right now? Sure. So um, while there's still so much we don't know about what happened in Colorado, we're still learning Uh, We know that LGBT people are far more likely to experience violence than non-LGBT people. Um, Our research shows up to uh, four times as likely to experience violent attacks as non-LGBT people. Four times more likely. Have you looked into the reason? I mean, what, what part does political or other public rhetoric play? I think that's a really important question. Um, Anti-LGBT sentiment is so pervasive in our society. And we know that while um, there are these horrible incidents of of extreme violence, there are also everyday types of violence that LGBT people do experience. And that includes discrimination in the workplace and in schools. And it also includes the kind of um, policy conversations we're hearing from, um, from lawmakers. Uh, including the anti-transgender bills that have been happening in state legislatures um, and bills like the Don't Say Gay Law in Florida. So that contributes to an environment where um, where there's a lot of negativity around LGBT people. How easy or difficult is it to collect accurate data about violence against this population or the threat of violence? It's a really good question there because uh, we don't have great data on LGBT people. Um, sexual orientation and gender identity are, um, are not collected on a lot of surveys. There are a few that do collect um, this information, but um, you know we're able to use sources like the National Crime Victim Survey where people self-report how they identify and if they've experienced violence. But there are other sources um, that do not contain this information. And if they did, we would, we would know a lot more. Um, I'll also add that between different states, uh, the way we look at bias-motivated crimes is different. Um, so each state has their own statute, their own laws. And that, um, that means that when we look at it from a national perspective, sometimes we see uh, different levels of information from different places. Can I ask you to drill down on that? Can you give me an example of how the definitions of a hate crime might vary from state to state? Well, I will say that you know there are around 37 states that protect against sexual orientation-based violence or hate crimes, and 28 protect around gender identity. So you see there's difference based on just the types mm. of um, motivation that, um, that are included. Uh, and then some states don't have any uh, protections there specifically to, to, to LGBT people. Um, so, so that right there is one example of how they might vary. Is there any evidence to suggest that hate crime laws actually deter crime and violence? against LGBTQ people? That's also a really good question. And you know what we look at in our, in our research is um, what, what the data show. And, and here we see you know, that there still maintains these disparities in both violence and in, um, in, in economics that in, in turn contributes to more likelihood to experience violence. Um, and so, so we can look at that and see that, that those, those particular um, indicators are still high. What are your prescriptions? I mean, noting all these holes in how data about LGBTQ populations are collected and measured, how do you make it better? Well, I think you know, one big piece is that um, 
we need to, to sort of solve the patchwork of protections that LGBT people have across the country. So really robust non-discrimination laws. You know, only around half of states have non-discrimination laws. So many, uh, in many contexts, LGBT people remain unprotected. And a great example um, of a federal law that, that might do that is the Equality Act, which has passed um, the House and may eventually pass the Senate, we hope. Um, and then state level non-discrimination laws. But also in making sure that when we do collect data, we are collecting data on LGBT issues. What are your reflections about the situation in Colorado right now? It's aftermath and the laws on that in that state. I'll say, you know, it's just horrible to think about what um, what happened in Colorado and what people are experiencing there. Colorado does have some of the stronger laws in the nation. And so, you know, in that case, you know, there's a good chance that they will be used to the most impact. Um, and we hope that that uh, is a model for other places. Alana Redfield, Federal Policy Director at UCLA's Williams Institute. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Ukraine's government is about to receive more than $4 billion in aid from the U.S. to help keep basic services running. The money will be vital this winter as Russia continues to damage or destroy so much of Ukraine's infrastructure. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. Ukraine's capital is cold and snowy, and those who live here are weathering repeated power cuts brought on by the ceaseless Russian attacks. Oksana Visnyuk wears extra sweaters to warm herself, but the electricity cuts cause other problems. I currently work from home, so every problem with electricity lower my work performance. She says she's relieved that some of the latest funding from the U.S. is set to subsidize utilities here and housing. The U.S. is giving the latest tranche of money directly to the Ukrainian government, mostly to pay doctors, teachers, and emergency responders. It would be harder for hospitals to operate without this aid from U.S. partners. Tanya Lemeshenko is a paramedic in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro. She says keeping hospitals, emergency services, and schools running helps create stability that's crucial for Ukrainians trying to survive under siege. And she adds that Western aid also helps keep jobs and salaries intact. People have work, they have place to go, they have salaries, so this is a psychological thing. The top U.S. aid official, Samantha Power, explains why this tranche of money is so important. For Ukraine to win the war against Putin, it is going to need more than just weapons, more than just military hardware. It's going to need banking services to keep the economy afloat, schools where teachers are paid, hospitals where health workers can go to work knowing that they can support their families when they get home. She says that all aid to Ukraine has come with strong bipartisan support from Congress. But that could change with the Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives, with some hinting that they want closer scrutiny of the funds. The money will be distributed over the next few weeks. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, some activists are urging doctors in states with abortion bans to defy the law and perform the procedures. But that can lead to medical professionals serving prison time and losing their licenses. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medix Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Ticketmaster has canceled its Taylor Swift sale. Some say its merger with Live Nation should be canceled, too. There is no way that this merger would be approved by the current FTC and Department of Justice. The question is, what will it take to break these companies apart under the law? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, a monopoly in the music biz. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The HOV lane on 93 South headed to Quincy will open early today at 2 p.m. to help with the start of the Thanksgiving travel rush. It'll open at 1 p.m. tomorrow. AAA predicts tomorrow afternoon will be the worst of the holiday travel rush. So if you can avoid being on the road, you probably want to do so. Lots of sun today with a high near 47, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 33. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 50, mostly sunny on Thanksgiving with a high near 46. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from Morgan Stanley, with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. It's been five months since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and now 13 states have laws banning abortion with limited exceptions for medical emergencies. Doctors who violate these laws could face felony charges, prison time, and the loss of their medical license. Surveys, news reports, and court affidavits show the fear of these laws has caused some doctors to delay or deny abortions, including in emergencies. Some doctors are asking themselves a tough question. When they are forced to choose between their ethical obligations to patients and the law, should they defy the law? NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. Here's an example of how the exceptions in abortion bans for emergencies can still cause problems for patients. NPR reported last week on Christina Zilke, who was discharged from an Ohio ER bleeding heavily from a miscarriage. They said they needed to prove there was no fetal development and um, was told that I could come back in two days. 
for a repeat hormone test to confirm I was miscarrying. She says doctors acted as if they didn't believe she was having a miscarriage, even though there was no heartbeat during her ultrasound. So they didn't offer her a DNC procedure to stop the bleeding, the same procedure that's used for abortions. Hours after being discharged, she was taken back to the ER in an ambulance and given the DNC. The hospital declined NPR's request for an interview. Another example? The Texas Policy Evaluation Project conducted a survey of clinicians operating under that state's restrictions. It found that sometimes providers avoided doing DNCs, opting instead for, quote, a surgical incision into the uterus because it might not be construed as an abortion. That's just nuts. Dr. Matthew Winia directs the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado. Much more dangerous much more risky. The woman may never have another pregnancy now because you're trying to avoid being accused of having conducted an abortion. Not all doctors agree that the abortion restrictions are responsible for harming patients. The American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs calls that idea absurd, arguing OBGYNs have many years of training to know when to intervene before a condition becomes life-threatening. But many doctors and groups like the American Medical Association are concerned. Winnie published an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine in September, calling for physicians to take a stand against these laws when necessary using civil disobedience. I have seen some very disturbing quotes from health professionals essentially saying, well, look, it's the law. We have to live within the law. And if the law is wrong and causing you to be involved in harming patients, you do not have to live to that law. There's actually a long history of civil disobedience around abortion. Mary Ziegler, a legal historian at UC Davis, says for many decades, starting in the 1900s, there was kind of a don't ask, don't tell silence around abortion. By the 40s, you get more of a crackdown on abortion, and it's more framed as um, a vice or a racket, the same language you'd be using against organized crime. Lots of abortion providers got arrested and prosecuted. Then hospitals began forming committees to authorize certain abortions in certain circumstances, like emergencies. But some doctors felt that wasn't enough. Allowing abortion when someone's death is imminent may be straightforward. But what about when someone has a heart condition and pregnancy makes that condition worse? Or if a patient tells their doctor, if I can't get an abortion, I'm going to harm myself. Ziegler says doctors wanted more leeway to follow their conscience and provide abortions in more situations. And in the 1960s, in the period leading up to Roe v. Wade, some doctors began to openly defy abortion laws. Not just getting arrested because they happen to get caught, but trying to get arrested. Dr. Milan Vujic is one example, she says. He was arrested 16 times for providing abortions in Washington, D.C. Dr. Leon Belus was arrested in California for just referring someone for an abortion. He fought back in the courts. And in Canada, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was actually imprisoned for violating abortion laws. He used the legal cases brought against him to progressively legalize abortion across that country. One interesting question is like, well, why is it that we don't have more, you know, Dr. Morgenthaler's now? For one, she says, the penalties now are very different. In the pre-Roe era, often if you violated an abortion law, I mean, you could lose your license to practice medicine. Most people didn't really face much real prison time. Some state laws now treat doing an abortion as like life in prison. 
That's the penalty for violating the abortion ban in Texas. Dr. Louise King raises another reason why there haven't been more people openly defying these new abortion laws. She directs reproductive bioethics at Harvard University and is an OBGYN surgeon. She says if she were to purposefully get arrested in Texas, for example, where she went to medical school and did her residency, she doesn't think it would actually be effective in getting laws changed. It's probable in Texas I'd lose the case. It's going to go up, wait, through the Fifth Circuit? I'm not going to win in the Fifth Circuit. And then am I going to win it in the Supreme Court? No. She adds another consideration is how few OBGYNs there are who provide abortions. Any doctor who's sitting in jail or fighting felony charges will never work again, and that's one fewer person who's able to take care of patients. So what's the point? I, I, don't, even, I don't even see the point. So far in the five months since Roe v. Wade was overturned and state bans began to take effect, there have been no reported prosecutions of healthcare workers. But Winia says charges against doctors will certainly come. There will be individual doctors who will get, presumably will end up in court. And then, you know, the question will arise, were they supported? Can they be supported? He says this is a leadership issue. He wants organized medicine, accrediting organizations, and medical facilities like hospitals to unite in saying clearly that they will support clinicians who decide to follow the standard of care for a patient even when that violates state abortion laws. Last week at the American Medical Association meeting, the legislative body directed a task force to develop a legal defense fund and strategy to help physicians who do face prosecution. Winia says that's a good first step. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, emergency workers in Indonesia are racing to locate people trapped under rubble after a deadly earthquake yesterday. It's 729. Keep listening to WBOR while you're traveling this Thanksgiving. Just use the WBOR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex committed to working with people who are driven to make a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More bodies are being found on Java Island in Indonesia following yesterday's moderate earthquake. The death toll is now 268. The quake struck a mountainous area in the country's most populous province. The head of Indonesia's disaster agency says more than 1,000 people were hurt and 22,000 homes were damaged. Charges have yet to be filed against the man suspected of carrying out a deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado. Five people were killed and more than a dozen others were injured at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Lucas Brady Woods with member station KUNC says investigators are still examining the evidence. Officials stress the investigation into the suspected shooter's motivation is ongoing. And while others are calling the shooting a hate crime, they haven't officially gone that far yet. District Attorney Michael Allen says his office is going to be very careful about what information it releases. We have an interest in making sure that any conviction we achieve in a case like this can withstand a, the appeal process. So we'll be very careful about the information that we share, at least as it relates to the DA's office. 
The alleged shooter, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, was still in the hospital as of last night, but will appear in court by video as soon as he's released. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Brandeis University is offering students counseling following a deadly bus crash last weekend. The shuttle bus crash on Saturday in Waltham killed a Brandeis student. 29 others were hurt. Gilbert Henga is interim director of the Brandeis Counseling Center. He says people respond differently to trauma like this. And even with the holiday coming, students can access help. Anytime during the night and also during the holidays, and we'll be providing the service. And the students can um, simply call um, the counseling center number and they'll be able to access a, a counselor. Most of the passengers on the bus were from Brandeis, but there were also students from other schools. The bus was on its regular route between Boston and the Brandeis campus. Search crews in New Hampshire's White Mountains will resume their search today for a missing Massachusetts woman. Officials say 19-year-old Emily Satello of Westford went missing last weekend. They say she was not prepared for cold weather. Temperatures on the mountains are near zero with a wind chill of negative 30. Residents in the central mass town of Hardwick will vote in January on whether to build a horse racing track. Town selectmen voted against the plan in October. They reversed that decision weeks later. The board tells the Telegram and Gazette it's pushing the vote to residents after some of them encourage selectmen to reconsider their votes. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol a new adaptation highlighting Dickens' time in Lowell, November 30th through December 24th, mrt.org. The Celtics' winning streak ended at nine games last night. They fell to the Bulls 121-107 to in Chicago. The Seas will return home tomorrow night to play the Dallas Mavericks. And the Bruins' winning streak is up to seven games. They beat the Lightning 5-3 to in Tampa. The Bees will visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow. And in a big upset at the Men's World Cup this morning, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina 2-1. to Clear skies and upper 40s today. A few clouds move in this evening, and it'll fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clear skies again and near 50. The skies stay clear for Thanksgiving, and it'll be in the mid-40s. Rain likely for Black Friday. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Heifer International, where people can find gifts that make a difference. A goat, chicken, or alpaca can change lives for a family in need. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. In Indonesia, emergency workers are racing to find people trapped under rubble after an earthquake there yesterday. Officials say hundreds have already died. That count is expected to rise. Rescue equipment arrived overnight in the city of Tianjur near the epicenter of the quake. We're going to turn to freelance journalist Aisha Llewellyn, who is in Sumatra, Indonesia. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, just give us a sense, Aisha, of, of the rescue efforts. What's the status at this point? Well, obviously, it's a really difficult time. You have to understand also the context of what's going on in the country at the moment. So the quake itself was 5.6 in magnitude. That's relatively small. We've seen much bigger. But it was also quite shallow, just 10 kilometers, which is quite close to the surface. But unfortunately, also, we're gripped by the rainy season at the moment. So the earth is very wet. We call this time of year in Indonesia disaster season mm. from November, December into January. That's often when we see a lot of disasters because the rains come, it causes flooding and that can cause landslides. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened in this case. The earthquake came and because the land around it was so wet and unstable, it then also triggered these landslides which collapsed on top of villages and carried away houses. And of course, as you said, the rescue workers are desperately trying to dig people out. But because of all that mud and debris, of course, it's going to be really, really difficult. Can you describe the area where this happened? I mean, is it densely populated? The center is quite densely populated, but there's also a lot of damage out in the villages around the main area. And my understanding is that they, those are the areas that have been badly hit because in the uh, in the center of town, obviously, the buildings are a lot more sturdy. Out in the villages, the buildings are much more rustic and, you know, not built really to withstand an earthquake of this kind. And so my understanding is that a lot of the houses there, just as soon as the earthquake started, just collapsed. I mean, I spoke to one man today who said he ran out of his house uh, in a village on the outskirts of town. And he said, all I could see around me was my neighbor's houses just falling, just toppling to the ground. Oh, any reports on critical infrastructure like hospitals? Well, that was also another problem. So in Tianzhou, there are a number of hospitals. But of course, what happened uh, when the earthquake hit was they needed to evacuate all the buildings, and that included the local hospitals. So you had a situation where you had hundreds of people outside the hospitals in Tianzhou because all the patients who were already in hospital were being evacuated for safety reasons. And then you had all the injured from the earthquake coming to the hospital. At the same time, the electricity went out, as you would expect, uh, across Tianzhou. So there was no electricity. And so everyone was kind of pooled outside in the parking lots of the hospitals. And really the emergency responders just had to treat them there. We saw people lying in the parking lots with IVs being put into them, people being stitched up who had cuts all over them, people who had broken limbs, kind of having to have them splinted and just having to wait outside until it was safe to go back inside. My understanding is that today the authorities worked really hard to get all those people back inside the hospital. Mm. But what just what an awful confluence yeah. of factors to all come together at the same time. Aisha Llewellyn, journalist reporting from Medan in Sumatra, Indonesia, on the earthquake that has occurred there. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For nearly half a century, J. Edgar Hoover presided over the FBI with an iron fist. A new biography shows how much of what he did met with approval from politicians and the public. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has more. The name J. Edgar Hoover conjures up an image of an old man sitting in a dark room, listening to wiretaps and marking up secret documents. He's the man who led a campaign of surveillance and harassment against Martin Luther King that's become one of the cautionary tales the FBI teaches new agents to avoid. But historian Beverly Gage says that public image is too simple. 
if we think of Hoover as a kind of rogue agent who had policies and strategies and opinions that we all want to condemn, that kind of lets everyone else off the hook in a way that I don't think is appropriate or true to the real story of what happened. Her new book called G-Man is the first biography of Hoover in nearly 30 years. Gage writes that public opinion in the mid-1960s did not favor King, now an icon of the civil rights movement. Instead, Gage says most people sided with Hoover. Most of his views and his strategies and what the FBI was up to was pretty public, and it was pretty widely supported by people in the White House, in Congress, at the grassroots. And so if we want to reckon with J. Edgar Hoover, I think we also really have to reckon with ourselves. Hoover stayed in power for 48 years through eight American presidents because he knew how to wield power, sometimes rebuffing the men in the White House and other times caving to their political demands. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson asked the FBI to spy on civil rights activists attending the Democratic National Convention. There's this great conversation where Lyndon Johnson, as he's leaving office in 1968, is sitting there with Richard Nixon and he says, you know, Dick, Edgar's going to be the only person in this town that you can really trust. Gage says Hoover's FBI reflected his own prejudices from the very beginning, starting with his background as a leader of the Kappa Alpha Order fraternity in college. Her book says Kappa Alpha was founded to honor Robert E. Lee. It was fascinating to watch the ways in which he took a young generation of men who were steeped in this racist segregationist ideology and made them some of the first generation of FBI officials. Throughout his long tenure, he saw communism and left-wing groups as a much greater threat than forces on the political right. That tension endures today in how the Bureau assessed right-wing extremists before the riot at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. In the book, Gage demonstrates Hoover's keen understanding of how things work in D.C. The real root of Hoover's power was his brilliance at being a bureaucrat, and that meant lots of different things. Hoover kept his budgets funded by loaning FBI agents to help the appropriations panels in Congress, and he used his sway with the White House to win an exemption from the mandatory retirement age. He died still working at age 77. The FBI director is now limited to a 10-year term, and that is in direct response to this colossal career of J. Edgar Hoover's. The FBI building in downtown Washington still bears Hoover's name. The Biden administration is considering where to build a new headquarters. It's not clear whether it will have a new name on the front. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, Massachusetts has a hotline for families to call when they suddenly face homelessness, but callers can be put on hold for hours. 
And in our next hour, former Vice President Mike Pence discusses his new book and his commitment to opposing abortion. In your forecast, upper 40s today under sunny skies, partly overcast tonight and mid-30s. Tomorrow's sunny again and near 50, mostly sunny and mid-40s on Thanksgiving. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Now, in business news, Senator Elizabeth Warren is asking the IRS to investigate the tax software company TurboTax. She says the company has been depositing refunds to new bank accounts it opened without permission from taxpayers. Warren also wants the IRS to develop its own free tax filing system. A new bus route will begin offering daily trips between Boston and the Pioneer Valley today. Our bus will take riders from Northampton, Amherst, and Belchertown to Logan Airport. The company also began a route between New York City and Amherst earlier this month. It's 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts is the only state in the country that guarantees a, quote, right to shelter for homeless families. But the first step is getting through to the state-run system using a hotline that doesn't always work. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports that critics say the phone line needs revamping. Oh, it's an eye. Paula and her two-year-old daughter had a rough fall. I love you. I love you. At the end of August, they were evicted from their apartment after a new property manager declined to renew their lease. So they went to her dad's place. That's also something that is not really the best situation. She says it wasn't long before he said they couldn't stay there anymore. She went back to a bad relationship in search of a roof. It turned violent again. We're not using Paula's last name to protect her identity because she's a survivor of domestic abuse. Out of options, she bounced between relatives and friends. She dialed the number for emergency assistance shelter and got a recorded message. All homeless coordinators are currently assisting other callers. Please remain on the line. Your call will be answered in the order in which it was received. I called the first time to DHCD. Three-hour wait. DHCD is the Department of Housing and Community Development. It's the state agency that runs the family shelter system. Someone finally picked up, and I just heard background noises for about 10 minutes, and I kept saying, hello, hello. Nothing. No response. Paula called back the next day and got that hold music again. Into after the three hours, my phone died, and I was outside, so I didn't get an answer. She tried again the following day from the lobby of an office. On hold, she pushed together some chairs so her daughter could nap as they waited. Another three hours later, the hold music stopped. 
The voice on the other end of the line said, Ma'am, you're going to have to call back tomorrow to find shelter. It's too late in the day. And I was like, I have nowhere to go with my daughter. And she said, okay, one minute, please hold. When Paula looked at her phone, she wasn't on hold anymore. Somehow, she'd been disconnected. Frustrated and feeling desperate, she turned to Greater Boston Legal Services. Liz Alfred is an attorney there. She emailed her contacts at the state's shelter program, and within an hour, they found a place for Paula and her daughter. Alfred says phone line troubles are the norm for families seeking to find out if they qualify for emergency shelter. During the pandemic, the state closed field offices, and it still encourages everyone to call in. So pre-COVID, you could go into the office and you could sit there all day. But at least if you were there with your suitcases and your kid, like there is some way that DHCD understands that they need to deal with you. On the phone, she says nobody sees you and nobody has to deal with you. The Department of Housing and Community Development declined requests for a recorded interview, but a spokeswoman says it's working to improve the system. The agency expects service upgrades in the coming months. The hotline received 8,000 calls last month, and the state says the typical wait time is two or more hours. Alfred says delays in finding shelter can be devastating for families. Sometimes it means separation. One child stays with this relative, another with that friend. Other times it means staying in an unheated basement or worse. I have had clients who went back to their abusers because they didn't, they weren't able to access shelter. Massachusetts is unusual in having a state-run family shelter system. There are some nonprofits that try to fill gaps. Michael Morshed from Friendly House in Worcester says his organization can sometimes put families up in a hotel. We have emergency short-term funds, but those funds are, are tight and we're worried about the winter, frankly. He says the lack of affordable housing is the worst he's seen, and it's pushing more families into homelessness. He says it's hard for the system to keep up. We see the state working very hard in an unprecedented crisis, but that hotline needs to be fixed. And the hotline and state field offices are closed evenings, weekends, and holidays. Recently, the state has provided shelter for more than 3,000 families each month, an increase from the same time last year. When Paula became one of them, she was impressed. It's amazing. She and her daughter have their own room. They get diapers, and there's a playroom with books. On their first night, another mom offered to help them find groceries. She said, hey, I'll walk with you. I'll go with you and show you the shortcut. The woman told Paula she didn't have to go it alone. But Paula says that's true only if you can make it past the hotline and into a shelter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. We're going to make you jealous today. Do you but, know why? Uh, food. Eating. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to eat on the show today. But it's actually a history lesson. So a uh, fascinating story of Joe and Lucretia Brown. He 
served out the term of his enslaver's son in the Revolutionary War in exchange for his freedom. Wow. They open a tavern in the late 17, early 1800s. She's a smashing entrepreneur, but also a great baker. And she develops this cookie that becomes really popular called the Joe Frogger, (laughs) molasses and rum that also keeps for a really long time so the sailors out of Marblehead can take it with them on voyages. And it's such an important and key piece of history that it is now on the menu at the cafe of the African American History of uh, Museum of History and Culture in DC. So we're going to learn about them, we're going to try the cookie, we're going to get this piece of sort of hidden regional history. Mm-hmm. I love uh, history and yeah. I love excuses to eat. Excuses to eat a cookie. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. It's 7:51. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Better Help, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Susanna Perlman is the founder of Art House NYC, and we meet her on the National Mall next to a brother and sister playing violin. Perlman is dressed in a silver blazer paired with Puma sneakers and stands in front of what looks like a tiny house in the shadow of the Washington Monument. This tiny house is an art exhibit named for Perlman's mother, Marla, a healthcare worker who died from COVID last year. And it's what inspired this project, an inviting home filled with portraits of other first responders and healthcare workers who were killed in this pandemic. More than 100 paintings, drawings, and digital artwork rotate through a series of framed flat screens hanging on the walls. My mother was always very proud of her home. She loved decorating and she loved putting together some when I walked in here for the first time, I'm like, yeah, she'd like this. Well, I let's know. go in and see what it is. Because um, I see wood paneling. It really does look like a little house. You know, it just feels like a living room and gallery space. You know, we have sliding glass doors and all these windows, so a lot of very natural light comes in. You know, when the sun kind of moves over to the other side, the, the images really kind of take over because yeah. they are on digital screens. And these images in front of us that we're looking at right now. These are all different healthcare workers from all over the United States created by the arthouse.nyc collective. It's interesting, when I when we started this project, I felt like these two communities of the healthcare workers and our community really mirrored each other because they were from far-flung areas. In what way? Just because the healthcare workers who come to the United States to work yeah. are literally the Philippines, India, Europe, South America. I mean, they're really from all over the world. And that's also what made this very heartbreaking. Like, there was a one over there, the woman was from the Philippines and she came here kind of alone, And but she was supporting her family back in the Philippines. And when she passed away, you know, they couldn't even come and get into the country to have a funeral. So there was like a whole thing of getting her body back to the Philippines to bury her. So when we had reached out to them, of course, they were saying, we would love it if you did a portrait. And then we had, the artist was from the UK, so we had to get the portrait to the Philippines, but they had this beautiful, memorial ceremony and the portrait was sort of at the center of it. Is your mother up here? My mother is not here yet just because there's a very specific photo that I want 
this wonderful expression when she would laugh that her smile was so big it was in a couple of zip codes and that's the face that i loved when my mother you have it right now smile that just this big beaming smile and that's what i i miss the most of her i mean here we are on the national mall where you have tons of memorials and this was a war in its own way so here is a monument to these individuals who gave their lives who went to work despite the risks and and ultimately paid the ultimate price you obviously know personally what it is to lose somebody to this war that mm -hmm. you described. Yeah. But also I think sometimes people almost are talking about it like it's over. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and I just wonder having this monument as you describe it, what it means to memorialize these names, these faces and the losses that so many families have suffered. Sure. I think during the pandemic, we would rarely see the faces. We'd rarely see these human lives that were behind these numbers, which I found more heartbreaking than anything else that I can think of during that whole time. It's just that these people were just being lost and forgotten. So this project brings that out. You know, you put a face with a name, you understand this person had a life, they had history, they had families, they had roots, they had, you know, the, the way they lived their lives. It's more of a personal touch than the statistics. Yeah, there's like these black and white portraits, mm -hmm. color portraits, some look more digital, some yes. more yes. almost like a photograph. Absolutely. I mean, we accepted anybody who wanted to participate, artists of all different styles and levels, just put them in a gallery. And when the families would get in touch with us, we would make that connection. What have they said to you, the families? Have they been able to see? That has been overwhelming. People saying to me, you will never know how meaningful this was, that you reached out to us at such a dark time and did this in such a public way. Because they've many of them have felt that way, that their loved one was just taken away from them. And then nothing, nothing spoken about it. And it was, became very private when death, as sad as it is, you know, brings community together, not having that. So I think a lot of them have been so touched by it as well. I just love this one. Beautiful. His face, his yellow shirt, the sun in the back. So that specific one was, that's our brand new portrait. It's of Noel Sinkiat. He was a nurse at Howard University Hospital. And he actually was the first nurse in DC to pass away. Oh. So we connected with the Philippine Nurses Association of Washington, D.C., and they connected us to his widow to create this portrait. Do you happen to remember what his widow said when you got in touch? We have had this conversation that has lasted over two years. Yeah. I think also because she has moved. And that's what I found with a lot of families is that, you know, sometimes they were they lost their breadwinner. I think that that's a story that's untold is how their loss has upended so many lives. We spoke with the creator of that portrait, Lynn St. Clair Foster. What I wanted to do was incorporate not just the portrait, just the head, as I usually say. Um, I try to bring in bits and pieces of their world, their life, their culture. Mm -hmm. So you'll notice that there's, in the background, you can see a, um, a tiny little uh, image of some of the original Filipino nurses that came to this country. What's it like to participate in this particular project? It's, it's sort of overwhelming. When I think about, you know, how many people really lost. These were the people on the front line, the same way that, that the, the, the front line workers were working during 9-11. This has just been global. The families were not able to say goodbye to their people. Um, they really weren't allowed to mourn the way people 
normally mourn. Yeah. Um, they also weren't allowed to celebrate their families. The blend of traditional and digital was really important to me, sort of it helped me to embrace the past and the present and the future. I do get a sense of almost like knowing more about him because of the yeah. movement yeah. Um, in the image. Yeah. Was, it makes it feel like he's alive, yes. you know? And I think there's another portrait of another woman that I, but the first one I did where I have like this glow behind her. And it's like she's an angel. There's an angelic sort of sense to it. Her name was Aliyama John. Among the many others immortalized in these portraits are Amanda Zivik, Anand Mahendale, Anjali Verma, Greg Pystra, Carrie Lynn Hennig, Daisy Doranilla, and Dwight Inouye. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Four freight rail unions have voted down a new contract deal reached with help from the Biden administration, stoking fears of a rail strike before Christmas. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, former Vice President Mike Pence discusses his new book, the January 6th insurrection, and his goals. I'm determined in, in however many years I have left on this earth uh, to be a voice for the unborn. Also this hour, some schools in Portland, Oregon, have committed to landmark climate policies. And that policy on paper is really, really good. There's a reason it was celebrated as one of the best policies in the nation. But making good on those commitments is proving complicated. And more than 100 Haitian migrants were rescued from rough seas yesterday as they tried to reach Florida. In sports, the Bruins win, Celtics lose, sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Authorities in Colorado Springs say they're working to learn more about the deadly shooting at a gay nightclub that left five people dead over the weekend. Lucas Brady-Woods from member station KUNC reports the 22-year-old suspect is expected to face numerous counts, including first-degree murder. But so far, no official charges have been filed. Law enforcement held a press conference yesterday afternoon, and they hadn't actually confirmed the charges then, and they didn't elaborate on them. But officials stressed that the investigation is ongoing, including into the shooter's motivation. At that point, they had not quite called this a hate crime. They hadn't officially gone that far yet, although Colorado Springs police chief did say it, it felt like one. Lucas Brady-Woods reporting. The trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four others is coming to an end. The Justice Department alleges the defendants of the far-right group conspired to forcibly stop the peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election. NPR's Giles Snyder reports jury deliberations are scheduled to begin this morning. 
Jurors in the Oath Keepers trial have heard testimony for nearly two months, but now closing arguments have wrapped up, and the jury will decide whether the actions taken by Stuart Rhodes and his four co-defendants during the January 6th attack amounts to seditious conspiracy, a rarely used charge. It carries a maximum 20-year prison sentence. The five men are accused of plotting to use force to keep former President Donald Trump in power. In closing arguments, prosecutors said they threw their bodies to the cause, arguing that the riot at the Capitol was the opportunity the Oath Keepers had been preparing for. The defense acknowledges the heated rhetoric Stewart used, but denies there was ever a plot. Trial Snyder, NPR News. Open positions for registered nurses in Texas have more than tripled since the coronavirus pandemic started. Houston Public Media's Sarah willer Ernst says the state continues to have higher vacancy and turnover rates than other states with similar populations. A new report from the Texas Center for Nursing Workforce Studies lays out the consequences the pandemic had on the nursing profession. The majority of hospitals in the state said COVID-19 caused nurses to leave hospitals for travel jobs, leave because of insufficient staffing, or retire early. Serena Bumpus, the president of the Texas Nurses Association, says factors driving the shortage are workforce violence and inadequate working conditions. It's really all nurses that are are now finding their voice and saying, we, we shouldn't have to tolerate this anymore. The report says the best solution is to ensure a safe working environment for nurses. I'm Sarah Willa Ernst in Houston. On Wall Street, Dow Futures are trading higher at this hour. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Police in Hingham are investigating what caused a driver to crash their car through the front window of an Apple store yesterday morning. A 65-year-old man from New Jersey was killed in the crash. At least 16 other people were injured. Police say they are questioning the driver but have not charged them. They haven't released that person's name or age. The old Boston Globe building in Dorchester will soon house a biotech workforce training program. Certificate programs will run for 8 to 12 weeks. And as WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports, the only requirement to enroll is a high school diploma. The Dorchester program is expected to start next fall with around 120 students. And those students will be paid to train for jobs in life sciences. Kendall O'Connell is the president of the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council, one of the program's sponsors. This can truly have generational impact for individuals who haven't ever thought about a career in the life sciences. It can help solve much of the workforce crisis that our companies are experiencing, particularly for these entry-level positions. The average salary for an entry-level biotech job in Massachusetts is between fifty dollars and $100,000. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Yasmin Ammer. Boston is getting $7 million to try to recruit new early childhood educators. Mayor Michelle Wu says the money comes from the American Rescue Plan and will pay for education and training for these workers. Wu says in return, the new teachers and educators would agree to work in early childhood care in Boston for two to three years. This will both ensure that graduates have an opportunity to put their skills to use in the field and help stabilize the early childhood sector in our city right now. Wu says right now there are 50 early education classrooms in Boston that are not being used because of staffing shortages. Get ready for the Thanksgiving travel rush. AAA Northeast spokesperson Mary McGuire says the getaway will begin in earnest later today. 
A lot of people try to get the jump on the holiday by leaving on Tuesday afternoon or evening. And we typically see a big backups on the Mass Pike and other major roadways. Uh, so leaving early, if you can, leaving early in the morning, I think will save you some time. Tomorrow is expected to be the busiest day on the roads for the holiday. AAA predicts one in five Massachusetts residents will travel 50 miles or more for Thanksgiving. A vast majority will go by car. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, offering state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. The Bruins topped the Lightning 5-3 to last night in Tampa. Boston's Patrice Bergeron notched his 1,000th career point in the win thanks to an assist in the second period. The Bees will visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow. The Celtics lost to the Bulls 121-107 to in Chicago. The Seas will be back home tomorrow to face the Dallas Mavericks. Sunny today and the high will be in the mid-40s, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 30s. Sunny tomorrow and near 50, sunny for Thanksgiving Day and in the mid-40s. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Indianapolis. We came here to talk with former Vice President Mike Pence. He's the man rioters tried to find as they attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Oh, Mike Mike Pence was in the Capitol that day, presiding over the ceremonial vote counting for the presidential election. President Trump had lost and publicly denounced Pence for failing to reject his defeat. Pence said he had no constitutional authority to do as Trump demanded. He had uh, a gaggle of outside lawyers that were telling him that as vice president, I had unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes to count, which no vice president in American history had ever claimed that authority. Pence has now recounted that experience and much else in a book called So Help Me God. As attackers disrupted the vote count, Pence and his family retreated to an office and then to a parking garage, but he refused to leave the building. I just was determined to stay at my post. Once police cleared the Capitol, Pence and Congress returned to work. We talked about this in his home state of Indiana. We met at the state Capitol, where he once served as governor. In particular, we sat beneath the ornate chandeliers of the building's law library. The law was what he said he upheld at the United States Capitol January 6th. When the tweet came across from the president saying that I, I lack courage, um, it angered me. But I really didn't have time for it. It was a moment where it was clear to me the president had decided to be a part of the problem. I was determined to be part of the solution. And we convened the Republican and Democrat leaders of the Congress and started to work to get the response from the Pentagon and the Justice Department to support all those remarkable people in the Capitol Hill police that were holding the line against the angry crowd. Which, in fact, you did. It took uh, all night, as I recall, before you got home. But uh, the work was done. I want to ask about the period leading up to that, because, of course, there was a period of several months leading up to that in right. which the president first predicted and then claimed a stolen election. You write something very interesting in this book. You say that, I believe on 
November 7th, two months before the attack on the Capitol, the race had been called for Joe Biden, and you spoke with Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and said you were not convinced that there had been sufficient irregularities to change the election. In the period that followed, did you consider yourself saying something in public or even conceding the race yourself because you were on the ballot too? Well, let me clarify something. Even at that early point, I was not convinced that there was fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. And uh, of course, evidence of widespread fraud would never come. But I was concerned about the voting irregularities that had taken place. And I said so all the way up to my correspondence to Congress on January 6th. I mean, there were a half a dozen states around the country, Steve, that in the name of COVID had changed the rules around elections, sometimes through executive action, sometimes uh, through an attorney general's decision. Sure. And um, in many cases, they were changes that seemed to benefit Democrat candidates in those states above Republicans. I thought it was uh, important that we have that debate was one of the reasons why I I made it clear going into January 6th that I thought a fulsome debate about irregularities and any evidence of fraud that may emerge would be useful for the country, if only to set the stage for future reform, which I'm glad to see is happening in states around the country. Laws have changed, but did you think about or discuss doing as uh, Attorney General Barr did, I think on December 1st, and just say, listen, there's not sufficient evidence here of, of anything major? For my part, I thought it was important that we just continue to support both the legal challenges as well as the legal processes that are established under federal law. I told the president that uh, if the uh, challenges in the court didn't play out, he should simply accept the result, uh, support a peaceful transfer of power, and if he wanted to uh, run again, he could run again. Granting that your advice to the president is private, could you have told us what you knew at that point? I, I think it was important in that moment that we let the courts, okay. the states through certification, and then the Congress work entirely through that process, uphold the Constitution, uphold the laws of the country, and, um, and move our country forward under the rule of law. I want people to know that you include some of your past speeches in this book and an appendix in the end, mm -hmm. including your 2016 convention speech in Cleveland accepting the vice presidential nomination. Mm -hmm. I was in Cleveland at the time, watched that speech. It's a good speech. I appreciated reading it again. Thank you. In that speech, you say Donald Trump is a good man. Not just that he was the man for the moment or the right man or a strong candidate, but a good man. I've seen this good man up close. His utter lack of pretense, his respect for the people who work for him, and his devotion to his family. Do you still believe he's a good man? President Trump was wrong on January 6th in uh, arguing that I had the authority to overturn the election. Um, but I'll always be proud of the record that we created for the American people, Steve. While you're proud of the record, you didn't just call him a good man again. Well, look, I, I truly do believe that only God knows our hearts. And I'll uh, I'll, uh, I'll leave it to others to make their own judgments. Pence recounts meeting the president after January 6th and promising to pray for him. He says he sensed Trump was remorseful, but... Steve, when the president returned to the rhetoric he was using before January 6th, began again to question those of us that had defended the Constitution. I just thought it was important that we go our separate ways, and we have.
Pence says he will decide soon if he'll run for president. His memoir came out November 15th. Coincidentally or not, that was the same day that Donald Trump chose to make an announcement. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other Republicans are positioning to run. We asked Pence what his purpose would be if he runs. What would he want to do? And for the moment, he said only service and unity. What I hear is people longing for leadership that reflects that same kind of civility and respect that I've always tried to aspire to. One of the reasons I ask why you'd want to do is because, as I'm sure you know, there's a debate about the future of the Republican Party, and there are some people who advocate what has been called national conservatism, which could be defined different ways, but one way to think of it is instead of going for small government and limited government, a kind of libertarian approach, maybe you endorse a bigger or more active government that will promote or even impose traditional values. Do you support that way of thinking? Well, I'm not sure I've heard it put uh, quite that way, uh, but look, I'm, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. Um, but I'm a limited government conservative. You know, it all comes down to the limited government republic that our founders enshrined, and that's uh, so more of the Ronald the Reagan, so more of the Ronald Reagan idea than the national conservatism idea. Ronald Reagan said in his first inaugural address, "It's important to remember the states created the federal government. The federal government didn't create the states." I think we would do well as a country to seize a moment where we again encourage states to be those laboratories of democracy and innovation that our founders contemplated. They're now, of course, laboratories of debate on abortion. Mm. Um, and abortion was on the ballot in a number of states this yeah. fall. In numerous states, people voted in various ways in favor of abortion rights. And it appears that candidates who supported abortion rights did well. What message did you take from that election? Well, let me say, I, I'm, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. I'll, I'll always cherish the fact that I was vice president in the administration that appointed three of the justices of the Supreme Court that gave us a new beginning for life, that returned the question of abortion to the states and to the American people where it belongs. And uh, all of my life, I'll, whatever role we're in, I'll look to be uh, uh, a voice for the right to life. You don't think that this election is the signal of where the country is going on this? Well, I... I will tell you that uh, the common denominator for me was that Republicans who articulated their position on the right to life uh, did well. Uh, Republicans who did not articulate their position and allowed their position to de be defined did not do as well. And the, the truth is that the Democratic Party today supports abortion on demand up to the moment of birth and taxpayer funding of abortion. Those are positions that are supported by about one out of four Americans. I truly believe that uh, this is a pro-life country. We're still divided on the issue, Steve. I should mention President Biden has said the Roe versus Wade standard is the one that he would approve, which is a little different than abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. It It is... Uh, I will tell you the Democratic Party has been very clear in their position on this. And and I I believe that the candidates that articulated their position on life, wherever that was, protecting the unborn, fared better than Democrat candidates 
in race after race. But look, I, I, I want to concede a point that we have a ways to go in this issue. But I, I believe that in the most prosperous nation on earth, we ought to be a nation that is grounded in the unalienable right to life. Mr. Vice President, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Steve, thank you. It's good to be with you. Former Vice President Mike Pence speaking here in Indianapolis on Monday. Now, one chapter of his memoir dwells on people who criticize his faith and his views on same-sex marriage. We'll hear that discussion this afternoon on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, as the World Cup continues in Qatar, scrutiny is increasing on that country's human rights record and the challenges faced by Portland, Oregon schools that are trying to stop using fossil fuels. It's 819. WBUR supporters include the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. You can plan your visit at ICABoston.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com slash MOS. I'm Deepa Fernandes. As you make year-end contributions to organizations that play an important role in your life and have deep impact in our community, put WBUR on your list. Support the reporting and storytelling that keep us all informed and connected. And as our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker at a 40% savings. This is a limited time offer. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And thank you. If you're looking to get into the holiday spirit, you may want to head out to a ceremony tonight to turn on the lights at the Christmas tree at Faneuil Hall in Boston. It's the first time there's been a tree there since 2019. The ceremony begins tonight at 6. Lots of sun today with a high near 47, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 33. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 50, mostly sunny on Thanksgiving with a high near 46. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. The World Cup is being played in the Middle East for the first time. Qatar, a tiny country with an outsized role in the region, was a controversial choice as host. 
Our co-host, Leila Fadl, spoke to NPR's Middle East reporter, Aya Petrawi. So, Aya, you've been covering Qatar for years. Let's take a step back before we get into the controversies of today and the games. How did Qatar end up being the host of the World Cup in the first place? Well, Qatar is a very small but very wealthy country. It has vast gas reserves, and it's really used that money to project its power and itself onto the global stage. And so this has been a huge moment of national pride for this country of just 300,000 citizens. They have spent $200 billion over the last decade in infrastructure, um, most of it for the games, highways, a new airport, hotels, beautiful new stadiums. So for this small country where 10 times as many foreigners live there than actual citizens, it's a very big moment. And most of those foreigners are there to really build this infrastructure, migrant Mm. workers. So it's a chance to showcase Qatar, a chance for people to look at Qatar and to look at it differently in a way that doesn't have to do with Mideast politics, oil and gas, its relationship with Iran and all the other issues in the region. So you mentioned migrant workers, and that's actually been a huge topic in the lead up because they've built the stadiums, but there's a lot of concern about the human rights situation for migrant workers. If you could just talk about where all the criticisms are coming from, because a lot of people don't want the tournament in Qatar at all. You're absolutely right. Migrant workers have built this infrastructure that you see in Qatar today. And they've worked in really harsh, difficult conditions in extreme heat. So this is a country where migrant workers for many years didn't really have rights. They were tied to their employers. They couldn't switch jobs or quit or even leave the country without a permission from their employer. A lot of that has been dismantled over the years, especially with scrutiny and attention on Qatar since they won the bid to host the World Cup. But there still remain a lot of challenges with being paid on time and severance and, of course, just the extreme harsh conditions that they work in. Right. But there are wider concerns about human rights in Qatar. This is an insular country where the emir inherited the throne from his father and a country where there is very limited political freedoms and speech. Um, homosexuality is criminalized. The Qataris are saying, look, we are welcoming everybody without discrimination. But there are concerns around that, of course, and that's, that's something that people have raised. And then if you could just explain the reason that Qatar has such an outsized role in the region. Right. First of all, it hosts a massive U.S. airbase. It's a close U.S. ally. Um, this airbase has been used to launch operations against extremists in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. It played a huge critical role in helping the U.S. during that chaotic evacuation out of Afghanistan last year through that airbase and through its relationships with the Taliban and other groups. It's used its money to back Islamist groups like that short-lived Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt, Syrian opposition fighters and others. That has caused tensions and um, actually a whole diplomatic fallout with its neighbors like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for years. But But really the crown jewel in the way that Qatar continues to project its power and its soft power is through the Al Jazeera News Network, which is based in Qatar and was founded by the Emir's father. NPR's Aya Batraoui, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. An Oregon school district promised to eliminate natural gas from new buildings. No more gas stoves or boilers. But making good on that commitment is proving complicated. Here's NPR's Katie Riddle. Climate activism came easily to Ada Crandall. She was in seventh grade when she organized her first protest. People ask, like, what are your extracurriculars? And I'm like, oh, climate organizing. Recently, Crandall was outside Portland's Grant High School in the pouring rain. She's a sophomore here. She says once she understood the magnitude of the climate crisis, she couldn't ignore it. I do feel like I sort of exist in two separate worlds at this point. Like, there's like my student world where I'm like 
at school, like being a teenager to the best of my ability and then like go home and like feel like I kind of have to be an adult in a way. She was part of a large coalition of people who worked to establish the new school policy at Portland Public Schools. It took three years. Goals include electric school buses, curriculum for students on climate justice, and net zero emissions by 2040. Liam Castles is a fellow organizer. That policy, you know, on paper is really, really good, um, right? It, like, there's a reason it was celebrated as one of the best policies in the nation. Castles graduated high school last year. He's taking a year off to do climate activism before college. Castle says even when the policy passed, he worried the district wouldn't follow through. But there's exactly one thing it was missing, and that was that accountability piece. Now, he and fellow activists are taking issue with another high school that's under renovation. Benson Polytechnic is a few miles away. When it's finished, the building will not look like the energy-efficient buildings the policy describes. It will burn fossil fuels. Mike Rosen is a retired environmental engineer and volunteer who worked on the policy. He says he feels betrayed by the school district. And then they do this 180-degree about-face on their own policy that they just passed. Rosen is standing outside Benson High. Behind him, workers stand on scaffolding amidst cranes and other equipment. He says it's important for the schools to set a good example for kids. It's time for grown-ups to walk their talk. Dan Young is the chief operating officer at Portland Public Schools. The Benson Project does not stop the district from reaching the climate policy goals. When the policy passed, plans for the building had been in place for years. Construction had started months previous. Young says changing course now would cost between 6 and $8 million. Eventually, he says, the district will retrofit this high school with cleaner, all-electric power. It's unclear when that will be, but right now, he says, it's too expensive. It's the cost of stopping a very large capital construction project. Activist Ada Crandall says $8 million may sound like a lot, but the total cost of this project was close to $300 million. With the impacts of climate change already being felt around the world, she says this generation has more to lose than their elders. I used to, like, do theater and play sports and, like, really loved those things, and I try to make time for them still, but it's like, this is my priority. That's why Crandall says she's doubling down on holding people in power accountable for their impact on the climate. In this case, it's the administrators at her school district. Next time, it may be someone higher up. Crandall's graduating early. She's thinking seriously about running for office. Katia Riddle, NPR News, Portland. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued more than 100 Haitian migrants, including young children, as they tried to reach Florida yesterday. And an agreement brokered by the Biden administration has been voted down by four freight rail unions, raising fears of a strike. It's 829. This We're month funded the- by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Search teams in Indonesia are still trying to reach remote areas of Java Island, where yesterday's moderate earthquake killed at least 268 people. Reporter Aisha Llewellyn says many houses were leveled in the remote mountainous areas. Those are the areas that have been badly hit because out in the villages, the buildings are much more rustic and not built really to withstand an earthquake of this kind. And so my understanding is that a lot of the houses there, just as soon as the earthquake started, just collapsed. Another $4.5 billion in U.S. aid is being sent to Ukraine's government. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. This is money that goes directly to the government of Ukraine to pay doctors, teachers, and emergency responders. The U.S. Agency for International Development says the funding will also be used for new housing and utility subsidies, crucial for the winter, as Russia continues to pound Ukraine's electricity and heating infrastructure. There has been bipartisan support for this direct budgetary assistance, though Republican Kevin McCarthy, who could become House Speaker, said he won't support a blank check for Ukraine. USAID officials say there are strong safeguards in place. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Russia's invasion is nearly nine months old. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Families experiencing homelessness are struggling to get through to the state's emergency assistance shelter hotline. Massachusetts officials encourage people to call in as the best way to apply. But as WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, some homeless advocates say the state needs to revamp the system. Last month, the Family Shelter Hotline received 8,000 calls. But social service agencies say many people waited for hours trying to get through. Liz Alford specializes in emergency shelter at Greater Boston Legal Services. It can just be days of waiting on the phone even just to get somebody to answer the phone. She says the delay can be devastating. Sometimes families get separated or turn to illegal or dangerous housing. I have had clients who went back to their abusers because they didn't they weren't able to access shelter. The state's Department of Housing and Community Development says it's working to improve the shelter hotline. It says the typical wait time is two or more hours. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. A new COVID subvariant is taking over as the dominant strain in Massachusetts. A report from the Broad Institute finds the BQ11 variant accounts for nearly 40 percent of cases in the state. Health officials tell the Boston Globe people who got the new bivalent booster shouldn't be too worried about the new variant. Over a dozen sports betting operators are vying for a license to get up and running in Massachusetts. Fifteen sports betting operators applied for a license by yesterday's deadline. Most of those were for in-person betting. Regulators hope to start that by late January. Their target start date for online and mobile betting is March. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, opening this Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics lost last night for the first time in 10 games. They fell to the Bulls 121-107 in Chicago. The Seas will host the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow. Five different Bruins scored in last night's 5-3 win over the Lightning in Tampa. The Bees' winning streak is now up to seven games. They'll visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow.
Clear skies in upper 40s today. A few clouds move in this evening and it'll fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clear skies again and near 50. The skies stay clear for Thanksgiving and it'll be in the mid-40s. But rain is likely for Black Friday. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. A frightening scene played out Monday when more than 200 Haitian migrants attempted to reach the Florida Keys in a floundering sailboat. Border Patrol agents say they rescued dozens of people who nearly died amid high winds and rough seas. Children and even babies were among the rescued. Some of the migrants are now in federal custody. Others have been sent back to Haiti. Reporter David Goodhue has been covering this for the Florida Keys News and the Miami Herald. David, the migrants who were on this journey, where are they now? Some are in Border Patrol custody, likely in Marathon, Florida, which is the middle Florida Keys. Um, Others are on a Coast Guard cutter and will probably most likely be sent back to Haiti. What kind of shape are they in? Some we saw that made land were seemed okay. Others seemed uh, pretty badly dehydrated. Yeah, because I'm watching some of the pictures that you posted or some of the videos that you posted on Twitter, and it just looks like it's just a, a frightening, frightening scene. And it kind of just shows their desperation in what they were trying to do. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that, and, and not to mention it shouldn't be overlooked. The weather the past few days in South Florida has been very windy, very rainy. It's been raining nonstop since probably about Sunday. So... The seas out there were uh, six to ten feet, uh, more than 25 mile per hour winds. So it was a very must have been a very harrowing journey. Do you know if they got medical attention? I'm, I'm sure they probably needed at least a little bit. They do right right off the bat. They get checked out, and, and um, not only the not only federal officials, but there were lo- local fire rescue medics on the scene. Yeah, as you've reported, uh, arrivals like this are becoming a lot more common. Uh, where are people coming from, and why are they traveling to the U.S.? They're coming from more so from Cuba and from Haiti. Both countries are going through uh, economic and political turmoil not seen in decades for Haiti and in a decade for Cuba. Haiti is also uh, experiencing uh, gang violence, fuel shortages and and other other problems that just make it unsafe for people to stay there. And how are federal and local officials responding to this uh, and both to this particular incident and to the growing number of arrivals in general? Well, the, the Keys is the Florida Keys has been the main uh, destination point for most of these journeys. Um, basically, the old wet foot, dry foot policy for Cubans, which was supposed to have gone away in 2017, is unofficially back because there's so, there's so many uh, migrants that have have come here. They can't be quickly processed and sent back to Cuba. Plus, the Cuban government is not accepting deportation flights from the United States at the at the moment. So. Right now, they're being released to family and friends for the most part uh, with uh, orders to uh, report to uh, federal immigration officials, similar to uh, being on probation. Considering that uh, we all know how bad the situation is in Haiti and in Cuba, are Border Patrol agents expecting more to come, and are they just making sure that uh, they'll, they'll be ready for them? 
Well, they, they track things by the fiscal year, which starts in October. And last fiscal year was already the, the most for Cubans in 10 years, in about 10 years, and for Haitians since about 2004. Already this fiscal year, again, that began October 1st. Um, if, if it goes on that track, it's going to more than double this year. So, yeah, they're expecting, they're, they're expecting more. And one more thing quickly, David, what's the response been to the migrants' home countries? I think people are finding um, that it might be worth making the trip, which federal officials beg people not to do because it's very dangerous to cross the Florida Straits uh, to get here. Um, but yeah, more people are, are encouraged because more people are making it. And, and so far, a lot of the people who make landfall are not being sent back. David Goodhue is a reporter with Florida Keys News and the Miami Herald. David, thanks. Thank you. We depend a whole lot on rail workers. They are at the heart of this country's supply chain. That's why there is so much concern right now that they could go on strike. Yeah, this week, the largest of the freight rail unions became the latest to vote down a five-year contract agreement. NPR's Andrea Shu is here to explain how we got here, what to expect going forward. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Rachel. First off, I thought we reported this already. I thought Mm -hmm. there was a deal not that long ago. What happened? Yeah, well, let's go back to summer. Back then, the railroads and the unions had been negotiating this contract for three years and getting nowhere. It was so bad, President Biden had to intervene. Mm -hmm. So he appointed this emergency board to come up with a framework for an agreement. And then in September, this is what you remember, the two largest rail unions and the railroads came to D.C. They huddled with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh for 20 hours straight. They merged with a deal that they thought the rank and file would be happy with or at least accept. You'll recall Biden even took a little victory lap celebrating the deal as a win for everyone. But the workers still had to vote on it. And here's how that's gone. There are 12 freight rail unions in all. Four of them have rejected the deal. And those four represent half of all the workers covered by this agreement. Now those unions have about two and a half weeks to try to reach new deals with the railroad companies. And if they don't, they strike? Well, possibly. The earliest they could strike is December 9th. And I should point out the railroads could also lock workers out at that point. It's happened before. But there's some expectation that Congress would intervene. By law, Congress does have the power to do any number of things to keep trains moving, including imposing the contract that the unions voted down or an earlier version or extending the negotiations. So any strike or lockout, if it were to happen at all, might only last hours, not days. But that there's still a lot of anxiety. The National Retail Federation warned that a strike at peak holiday season would be devastating for American businesses and families who are already facing higher prices because of inflation. You know, more supply chain problems could cause prices to rise. The White House has called a shutdown unacceptable, noting the harm it would inflict on jobs, families, farms, businesses and communities. All right. So say more, though, Andrea, about what rail workers want that the contract does not give them right now. Well, a lot of them will tell you it's quality of life issues. They want paid sick days. They want more flexibility, especially those who are subject to strict attendance policies. Some are happy, unhappy with the raises built into this contract. 24% over five years sounds like a lot, but the workers point out that barely beats inflation. And meanwhile, the railroads have been enjoying record profits in part because they've reduced the workforce so dramatically in recent years. I talked yesterday with Jeremy Ferguson. He's president of Smart Transportation Division. That's the union that just voted down the deal yesterday. He sees the no votes as workers finding a way to have their voices heard. I hope uh, the railroads are are listening and that the CEOs uh, realize that uh, they have a serious uh, issue, you know, with the workforce. And Rachel, that's something we've seen in other industries as well this year, whether it's nurses, 
and mental health workers going on strike, or baristas and warehouse workers trying to form unions. They're all trying to send a message to the bosses that they're not okay with the status quo. So I think we shouldn't be too surprised that rail workers who are so crucial to the nation's supply chain, that they're holding out at this moment just before the holidays. After all, they have the nation's attention right now, and they want to make the most of that. <laughs> they got a little bit of leverage, yeah. NPR's Andrea Shu, thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, many major clothing stores have too much inventory, which may mean lots of discounts this holiday shopping season. Upper 40s today under sunny skies, partly overcast tonight and mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny again and near 50, mostly sunny and mid-40s on Thanksgiving. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. Holiday gifts for the home chef, including recreational cooking and baking classes and gift certificates. Learn more at cambridgeculinary.com. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based medicine startup Fog Pharma says it raised $178 million in its latest round of funding. The money comes as the company prepares to launch its first human trial. Fog Pharma says it's testing a drug meant to block inhibitors that make certain types of cancers harder to treat. For the first time in its history, a woman will serve as president and CEO of GBH. Yesterday, the public media giant named Susan Goldberg to the role. She spent the last eight years as top editor at National Geographic magazine. Celebrity chef Tiffany Faison is opening a new restaurant in Boston today. Tenderoni's Fenway will be the second location for her new restaurant, which she describes as Italian-American-ish. The original location opened downtown at High Street Place earlier this year. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Fernandez, a 19-year-old college student is saving money on housing by renting a room from an 89-year-old. I pay $300 a month for my room, which is pretty affordable for me. We learn more about a home share program that matches older and younger adults as a way to prevent homelessness. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Clothing stores have a major problem on their hands. They have too many things. And it comes at a time when many shoppers are tightening their budgets and wondering if they really need that new pair of gym shorts. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. If you've been to a clothing store lately, you might have noticed it. Full racks, price cuts, promises of particularly good holiday sales. Black Friday deals. Black Friday deals. This one's a JCPenney latest. Coats and boots and coats and boots and coats. And actually, coats and shoes aren't even the biggest stars of this year's sell-off. It's kind of regular stuff. Brian Arig is with a consulting firm, Carney. We've really seen it across the board. We're talking tops, bottoms, sleepwear. All of those products are really seeing quite a glut. A glut of inventory, as in some big chains found themselves with extras, extra colors, extra sizes and styles. For instance, Levi's ended up with too many jeans, Gap with too many hoodies, Kohl's with fleece and pajamas. Like Nike's been discounting shorts and t-shirts and sandals. Christina Fernandez is an analyst at Telsey Advisory Group. She says Nike for a while was flagging inventory concerns, but kind of like no big deal. And then this fall, the tone got much more urgent. They usually tend to downplay, (laughs) I say, you know, when there's things to be concerned about. And they did not. (laughs) Nike executive Matt Friend told investors the biggest issue was clothes in the U.S. market. We effectively have a few seasons landing in the marketplace at the same time. In any year, clothing stores do this tightrope act, trying to predict trends months in advance. And think back on recent pandemic years. First, in a blink of an eye, it was all stretchy pants, pajamas and house dresses. Clothing stores were empty, going bankrupt. Then a shopping boom. Retailers hit the gas pedal, ordering more and more, just as suddenly travel and parties and the return to office changed everything again. A lot of the things that people have been wearing over the last couple of years are not the same things that they're wearing now. Through it all, shipments from Asia have seen lots of disruptions. Many stores worried about another mess and decided to take no chances on this holiday season. They've been ordering ahead even earlier than usual. And that's how you get the Nike problem, with summer, fall, and winter orders all kind of here at the same time. Some too late, some too early. Add to all this rapid soaring inflation. It added to a confluence events of, you know, getting some inventory laid, others that you didn't really need, and then consumers demand slowing. Spending on clothes is expected to decline this holiday season. Inflation has hit clothes much less than other products. Prices are up about 4% compared to a year ago, actually falling for the past two months. Adam Davis works with retailers as a managing director at Wells Fargo, and he says stores are deciding what to do with their excess stockpile of clothes. They could discount it and kind of lick their wounds and maybe buy less going into next year. They can pack away the inventory. And if it's evergreen, meaning it's a a white t-shirt or whatever, kind of that staple item, or they can move it to a discount chain. Or all of the above, which in the end means probably widespread deals for the holidays. Whether people decide they actually want more clothes is a whole other thing. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Stretchy Pants Martinez. (laughs) 
I'm Rachel Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a recent survey finds that a majority of Americans have delayed a major financial decision like a home renovation or car purchase because of concerns about where the economy is headed. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. Good morning. We have a lot on the show today. All the latest news, we are going to go to Colorado Springs, where we'll be speaking with the pastor of the church where a major memorial remembrance was held there. We're also going to get an update on the deaths of the uh, Idaho College students, which not too much is known about, but we're asking why. We're also going to talk about the stunning upset uh, that Argentina faced in the World Cup to Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you're a World Cup fan there, Rupa, but we will be checking in. Of course, the U.S. broke some hearts by not being able to win either, but they still have another chance. We'll be talking some World Cup and we're going to go to Southern California where there's a really interesting program that's aimed at ending homelessness or at least stemming homelessness by having college students live with seniors. So a lot coming up on today's show. So interesting. Thank you, Deepa. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring online.merrimack.edu. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, you're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks. A year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Sunny today in mid to upper 40s. Temperatures fall to the mid 30s tonight and it'll be a bit overcast. Tomorrow, Thanksgiving Eve will be sunny and near 50 and Thanksgiving will be sunny too in the mid 40s. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston at 852. We are a step closer to a strike next month by people who run freight by rail. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Personal Capital, where people can view their entire financial picture on their dashboard, helping take the worry out of financial events like retirement or college. Personalcapital.com. I'm David Brancaccio. Another major union for railway workers has narrowly voted against a contract deal negotiated by the Biden administration. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is following this from Washington. Nancy? David, the union is called Smart Transportation Division, and it mostly represents conductors on freight rail trains. Their main complaint is the deal wouldn't give them enough paid time off. Uh, The agreement would have allowed them to take unscheduled time off three times a year. The union says that's not enough. It also objects to the railway's business model, which aims to do more with fewer workers. And let's talk about deadlines for this thing. Yeah, there could be a national freight rail strike in early December, right before the holidays. A presidential emergency board was appointed earlier this year. It's mandated a series of cooling off periods. The current cooling off period could be extended. Uh, Congress could also intervene to prevent a strike, possibly requiring the two sides to go to arbitration. And you're seeing assessments of the economic effect of a strike? 
Yeah, the Association of American Railroads, which is an industry trade group, uh, it estimates that a national freight rail shutdown would lead to more than $2 billion in economic losses per day. and More than 400,000 long-haul trucks would be needed to fill that gap. The association says there aren't that many trucks or drivers available. Nancy Marshall-Genzer, thank you. Markets, Dow futures are up 115 points, three-tenths of a percent now. S&P futures are up four-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures are up two-tenths percent. Crude oil down more than 5% yesterday morning, up nearly 2% now, 81.57, with the Saudi energy minister firmly denying a published report that an increase in oil production might be on the table at the OPEC meeting next month. It'll be like one of those disaster movies unfolding in a Delaware bankruptcy court today. Officials from the cryptocurrency trading platform FTX are expected to recount their understanding of what went wrong and in what order. This is the biggest bankruptcy filing ever for a crypto company. We may even get a better sense of the scale of this mess in a filing. FTX has said it owes $3.1 billion to its top 50 creditors. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by ReliaQuest, the force multiplier for cybersecurity teams, protecting the world's largest companies from ransomware to sophisticated cyber attacks. ReliaQuest combines OpenXDR technology with security expertise to make security possible. ReliaQuest.com. And by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at Avalara.com. Both of these are true. Gasoline prices going into Thanksgiving here are the highest since the year 2000. Yet gas has dropped sharply in a week down 11 cents a gallon, according to the Automobile Association. 366 is the national average. The wider economy is full of contradictions as well, especially now. Let's take today's economic pulse by turning to Michelle Singletary, who writes a personal finance column for The Washington Post. Hey, Michelle. Hi. You know, it's such a funny economy, but not funny. Ha ha. We have inflation, yet people are still getting jobs, so they're still spending. It's hard to know exactly which adjectives to use, the good ones or the bad ones. Yeah, it's a really mixed bag for folks. There are people who are doing well. They can demand a good salary because they are in demand. And once you get that good paycheck, you want to spend it. You want to do some things that you may not been able to do, especially during the pandemic. You know, maybe buy a car, take a vacation, go see auntie. Mm -hmm. And so that is driving up consumer, you know, prices. On the other hand, there are people who suffered during the pandemic, lost their jobs. They're still trying to climb back out. Or maybe they were still struggling before the pandemic hit and it just made it worse. And those folks in particular are experiencing a lot of pain right now. You know, going to the grocery store, just all the regular things, your rent is going up. And so there's a lot of economic pressure on them. And, you know, we we go back and forth about, well, are we in a recession? Is it economic downturn? Is it going to turn the corner? But for these people, they're thinking right now, my life, my financial life is bad. All right, let's go from the macro economy to something micro with the knowledge that micro things like a little splinter in your soul can be really irritating. Michelle, you talked to someone who got together with a friend. What happened? 
<laughs> I got an email. The, the subject line said, disgusted. And she said she and her husband were invited to a friend's home for a meal. And she said, oh, what can I bring? She brought some wine and dessert. And at the end of the meal, the friend said, oh, by the way, you owe me for the takeout. Ooh. And it just enraged her. And this is not out of the ordinary. I hear it oftentimes it's happened to me. Someone invited me to their birthday party and then said, you've got to pay for it. Um, and I think sometimes with the advent of Cash App and Vidmo and people being able to, you know, shoot an email or text or someone saying, hey, you owe me for this. People think that it's okay to charge your guests. It is not. It's rude. You should never charge your guests. If you are the host, you should be hosting. And that means that you don't charge your guests for the pleasure of your company. I really upped my pizza game in the last year, and they're coming out pretty fine. We've been inviting people over. I guess I better stop trying to figure out how much I could charge. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing from you. <laughs> That's exactly right. Listen, this, I think the trend is all about people are living above their means, and it's fine to celebrate these life events, but not on the back of your friends. If you can't afford to have that birthday bash at the restaurant, just have folks over, watch a movie, pop some popcorn. You know, especially now with the economy the way it is, you know, if you truly can't afford it, don't make your friends help supplement a life that you can't afford to do. Venmo and Zell in the wrong hands can be a destructive <laughs> force. Michelle Singletary, Washington Post personal finance columnist. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. For the record, one of my homemade 12-inch pizzas would be worth $16.99, $18.99 for the arugula ricotta and balsamic reduction one. But I'm not charging, just saying. Our producers are Meredith Gerritsen-Morby, Ariana Rosa, Stephen Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jarrett Dang. I'm David Brancaccio, and we're from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be sunny with mid-40s today, partly cloudy and mid-30s tonight. Sunny and near 50 tomorrow, mostly sunny for Thanksgiving and in the mid-40s, cloudy and rainy on Black Friday in the low 50s. Right now it's 39 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Ticketmaster has canceled its Taylor Swift sale. Some say its merger with Live Nation should be canceled too. There is no way that this merger would be approved by the current FTC and Department of Justice. The question is, what will it take to break these companies apart under the law? I'm Kimberly Atkins Store, a monopoly in the music biz. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.